0: The Guardian. Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast on The Guardian, sponsored by Heineken. Proud to open Rugby World Cup 2015.
1: And welcome to the third episode of the Guardian's Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast. I'm Sandy Waugh and coming up we'll be discussing all the latest news from the World Cup including Wales' dramatic victory at Twickenham and the return of the Springboks. Joining me today is comedian and broadcaster Andy Zaltzman, the editor of Sports Business International Owen Evans and from the Guardian we have Andy Bull and Dan Lucas. Hello everyone. We have so much to talk about, so obviously we'll start with Saturday night's thrilling Pool A match between England and Wales. Arguably the most anticipated match between the two countries ever, played in the most intensive atmospheres at Twickenham, and it saw Wales win 28-25 after a late comeback. Well, for 60 minutes, England looked pretty comfortable, and the Welsh were decimated by injury when they lost Scott Williams, Liam Williams and Hallam Amos. But England failed to hammer home the advantage. Well, let's get the views of the happy Welshman first. Um, Owen, how did Wales hang in there?
2: I've got absolutely no idea. And really, I think, I think this is a victory that would have never happened pre-Warren Gatland. It was about as much about the coach as I can ever imagine. A Welsh performance in the past might have been very similar to England's in that you're looking dangerous enough to close out a game and you don't quite, quite manage it. But there's just something about ever since probably that first victory at Twickenham in 2008 when we were 16-6 down with Gatlin, we came back to him in the last 10 minutes. That is, if you see him in any press conference, he's just stubborn and obdurate and he just gets in the way and he doesn't get out of, uh, of someone's pathway, basically. So I just think the fact that we just didn't let England get away for those first 60 minutes. I was watching it through my hands. The set pieces were completely dominated. Um, and then at half-time you're thinking, well, if they get the first, first penalty, which they did, and they get the first advantage, that's it, they'll just move away. But it got to 60 minutes, and that, that one moment, just looking down from the press seats, and yeah, Bigger was on the floor, Amos was on the floor, Scott Williams was re- waiting for the stretcher. And I just thought, this is, this is just ridiculous that it might actually turn out in our favour. And I think there was a sort of sweeping feeling amongst the Welsh fans there. And I was listening to Sean Edwards last night, and he was saying, at that moment, Warburton brought all the players in and just said we've got them now, they're blowing, we've got them now, we're going to get them now, last 20 minutes. You think he he was saying that with half his team out, a third of his team waiting for a stretcher, and that kind of mental mental toughness, that attitude, is something that is not typically Welsh. Having grown up following the mid-90s was not a fun time.
1: Because Gatlin said he thought Wales just wanted it more.
2: If you look at it on balance... There's two really strong, really closely tied teams in terms of quality. If you go man for man and everyone's fit, I'd say Wales slightly edge it, just about. If you go for squad depth, England definitely edge it. But I think if you're going for a game where it's level with five minutes to go and you're looking for leaders on the pitch, warriors on the pitch, and you look down the line that's about to take place and you've got Sam Walburton, British Lions winning captain, as well as double grand slamming. Uh, Gethin Jenkins, triple grand slam, same amount of the Lions towards. Alan Wynne-Jones, vice captain. I mean, the leadership that's there... Is, is vastly different, I think, to the English team. I don't know what everyone thinks about that, but I think there's a clear edge for Wales. And so when it comes down to you get to that 75 minutes and you're still in there, I felt the, the advantage was massively in
0: Wales's favour.
1: Let's bring in Andy. If I can bring Andy Bull in here, what do, you, what do you make of that? Do you agree with that analysis?
0: Yeah, I think it's a pretty fair assessment of the major differences between the two teams. England should never have lost that game. I think you have to be clear about that. The biggest single reason they did lose it was a lack of control, a lack of leadership in those last 10 minutes.
3: I think you're right. Um, I don't know as wanting it more is the right way of putting it, but yeah, certainly... it sounds like Warren being mischievous. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the likes of Warburton and Alan Wynne-Jones are kind of the perfect ciphers for Warren Gatland. They bring that belligerence that he has, that kind of tenacity and that refusal to know that they're beaten. I think England don't really have that, and that was... Kind of the key difference in the end.
1: So, Dan, are you of the, of the the school that think England lost that because of the way they approached that match, rather than Wales won it, which is a terribly unfair thing to say, but some of the press are saying it.
3: I think that England kind of played into Wales' hands with the team they picked. I think they were looking to kind of play Warren Ball, and then, surprise, surprise, it turns out Warren Gatland really understands Warren Ball quite well, which we couldn't have foreseen, but uh, I think it did, did play into uh, into.
1: And, Andy Zoltzman, you were there. Could you believe in, that the match turned the way it did?
4: <laughs> yes, because I'm innately pessimistic. Um, <laughs> I was sitting next to a, a very nice Welsh fan who was equally as pessimistic as me and we both spent the whole game saying we're going to lose this. Um, and uh, yeah, it clearly wasn't a case of wanting it more. I think that's kind of easy shorthand. Well, I guess what it might mean is that Wales kept a clearer head in those decisive uh, decisive moments and uh, England's choices their selection their bench really backfired in the in the last 20 minutes um, I was watching it with my 6 year old son in the cheap seats by which I mean relatively cheap compared with how expensive the expensive seats were uh, way up behind the posts and he dealt with this extremely badly towards the end he <laughs> was in full uncontrollable tears and I was saying to him look you know, it's only a game the better team won. Objectively, it's a, a victory for positivity and clear-headed thinking and a bit of a defeat for caution. Whilst at the same time, I was wanting to bore my head off exactly the same and throw the kind of tantrum that is generally and sadly frowned upon in a 40-year-old father of two. But essentially, my son was only saying what all England fans were thinking, which was, we've blown this. We really should have won it. And it." Um, uh, I think Wales deserved to win just because they played that crucial, decisive part of the match, so much better than England. And they got a really, really good try. There was you know, questions over the England defence. Brad Barrett, who was brought in basically specifically for his one dimension, which is very good defence and defensive organisation, seemed to defend that like an uh, overexcited eight-year-old who just was quite happy to be outside and charged up and that led... I mean, it was beautifully taken by Wales and it was a visionary kick by uh, Lloyd Williams. Uh, so I don't think England can have many complaints. They had chances um to put the game away they just every time they got more than a score ahead within about a second they'd given away a penalty uh it was uh, annoying in terms of the leadership as i've watched Quinns for 10 years and rob shaw's been a you know fantastic leader for Quinns and and generally kept calm in the biggest moments but whether this is of a, just that much a different dimension that um there wasn't the clarity there that that he's often had with Quinns. At the same time, it did seem that it was a collective decision Whether you think there should be collective decisions in that kind of game um, that, You know, there was the two fly halves and Rob Shaw And they all seemed to go This is go the decision to
1: go at the end for the... Yeah. T- to try what, what Japan did, and we all celebrated yeah, So a, magnificently
4: but, Yeah, but the, a, a draw for Japan was not a great result uh, a, a win for Japan was a massive result For England, a draw was a decent result uh, it, not only it's only one more point for England, but it's two less points for Wales. Uh, and, uh, but having done that, to then throw a line out to the front, which is pretty much giving you the smallest chance of scoring from your driving mall, was utterly, utterly... I think that was the weirder decision than taking the right, kick for that's touch. That's the point
0: with this issue, is the decision you can question, the execution is what cost yeah. them both instances, because then the second line-out after that, Wigglesworth obviously knocked yeah. the ball on when they tapped it down from the top. And that, again, is symptomatic, I think, of a lack of thinking under pressure. Uh, it's interesting, going back to the selection, I think you're right to single out Brad Barrett. You were saying they got it wrong. I think, having watched the match again, it was very confusing on the night. Watching it again, yeah, Brad Barrett had a pretty bad game, actually. Especially, as you say, given what he was picked yeah. to do. But,
4: but Langston left himself in that situation once Joseph was injured... He had to have a massive reshuffle, so he didn't have anyone who could play even slightly the same type of game. He could have risked Henry Slade, but Slade has never played a major international. That would have been a big, big risk. It might be that that was w- worth a risk. Sometimes players step up to that, but having he basically jettisoned you know, two of the three guys who've played most at centre for England, and that has left him in a situation where they're trying to have to wing it on, winging it
0: on the hoof. Can you so, wing it on the hoof? So tactical yeah.
1: errors, substitutions that maybe were questionable. Um, Owen, some people were saying it was panic.
0: I
2: think what it comes down to, and any Welsh fan will tell you that Gatland said game management for about ten years now. This phrase, game management, and it's and it's rang hollow a little bit um, when we played Australia, particularly like when we were on the 2012 tour and we lost three nil, but it was only difference about eleven points because every time it came down to those last five minutes. And we gave it away, we choked, or we, we just made the wrong decisions, which is what happened to England on Saturday. The thing that I'm most disappointed in is what Lancaster's been doing since the game ended, and, and he's almost been in some ways trying to certainly in the postmaster press conference is just distancing himself a little bit from the call that was made by Rob Shaw. Now Rob Shaw I know has got a history of making bad decisions um, with South Africa in two thousand twelve. But I think that's the moment where Gatland in the past has stood by the Captain, or stood by the person making the call, knowing that you didn't p- privately agree with it, but stood by it in public to try and reinforce that strength of trust between the leadership and the captain. There, see, I think the difference there is that you don't just say to Rob Shaw and Lancaster before that game, If five minutes ago we're level, we do this, or we make this call. You, you look at it in the context of you're in the group stage, you've got the bonus point in the bank, as Andy was just saying. There was absolutely no need to do that. But it shouldn't just all go on Robshaw's shoulders, I don't think. I think Lancaster should be there with him saying, no, we prepare for this. This is part of our preparations. We know that in every type of scenario, we've got the right decision we make.
3: And it's not just made on the hoof. Going back to Owen's point about uh, Lancaster not standing by Robshaw's decision. that went Back when Robshaw made the wrong calls against Australia and South Africa back in uh, 2012, well, um, Lancaster did stand by his players then, so it's interesting that he's kind of changed his his attitude there. And I, I don't know if that suggests he's feeling under pressure because his game plan back, backfired because it didn't come off. He could, um, I, I it might be that he's yeah. To- I mean,
0: I, I wrote about this in today's paper and pulled up the quotes that Lancaster used in 2012, and he was notably a lot more enthusiastic about what Rob Shaw had done and in showing support for him. This time around, he did look, I'm afraid, a little bit like a man who was protecting himself. He, he looked yeah.
4: at me, the look on his face after the game was like a man who just won a castration in a raffle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and that's worrying because clearly there is a, a fairly small window now for them to assess the injuries, how they're going to regroup and how they emotionally, psychologically regroup ready for Australia.
0: I don't think you need to psychologically regroup at this point. If you need motivation now, then you shouldn't be playing for England. I mean, this is the biggest match you're going to play in your life. If you lose this, people's careers are going to be over on that management staff. But if there's any
1: suggestion the boss is not backing the team, that doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't
0: sound good. I would say it's only a hint. You know, it's only a hint. I wouldn't want to say Lancaster was absolutely doing that. But yeah, it's one of the things they're going to have to pull together on this week.
1: And are you optimistic they can do that? (sighs) That she sounds like a no Andy <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like we a no Just stop there really That's, yeah. that's the most
3: We're most, uh, just... all England cricket fans We don't do optimism <laughs> is. Uh,
4: I, think, I think the key player in the game Was Lee Halfpenny Because when he got out injured England clearly thought "A Halfpenny's out They can't possibly kick any penalties We can give them away Completely
2: unpunished before I mean, that, someone... that, that lack of discipline Is something that has to be addressed pointed out that
4: Bigger statistically the most best kicker in Europe last season? He was the best it? in the yeah.
3: Pro 12 for the last three years I think. I mean mm-hmm. the the discipline was an issue but it wasn't so much that, that England gave away 12 penalties because Wales gave away 11 themselves it was where England gave the penalties That's away. Right. I think they gave away 8 in, the, in their own half and Bigger went for goal with 7 of those and slotted every single one that was the that was the key issue when it came into discipline it was-
1: yeah we should take a moment to, to actually celebrate what Dan Bigger achieved there and I guess this is Q U on this well the, I mean this is he had an incredible
2: game and Welsh fans talking about World Cup recent World Cup successes looking at 2011 we had the team much better condition than we are now the players were a bit younger as well but we didn't have a 10. We had a massive gap. And, and traditionally, Welsh rugby has always had, right the way back from Barry John, has had uh, enigmatic, a controlling 10 that they can revolve around. And Bigger was looking that way. He certainly had the confidence since he's come into the crew. He's got that self-assuredness. And it seems that everything that goes in this direction, he just rises to the occasion even more. I know the bigger, the better. The headline's been used ad nauseum recently. But he's just got that position now where he is the number Turner Wales. It's not in any doubt at all. He hasn't got Mike Phillips to his left anymore which may not have always been the most um, positive influence on him in terms of two characters going either side. Gareth Davis did a fantastic job, let alone the try. He had a fantastic game. Um, And Bigger, really, we were hoping that if we had any chance of winning, he would have to have a fantastic game and that's actually how it turned out. But it's just interesting how it's almost the reverse mirror effect of last uh, last World Cup in 2011.
1: You've got um, um, some obvious... Injury issues to try and deal with before two really tough matches remaining, Fiji and Australia?
0: Oh, uh,
2: yeah. I mean, I know you started this off with Happy Welsh Fan, but the pessimism kicked in about two hours after the end of kickoff. We're in post match <laughs> talking to a couple of guys, and we'd, we'd worked out we'd definitely lose to Fiji and then we'd, <laughs> we'd be knocked out on points, which is pretty much where we were. The, the point was that. Injury seems like such a weak excuse. It seems like something that everyone says, but it is really decimating this team. It's, it's. it's if you just run through the names and who's coming in, we don't have the depth of an England or, or one of the Southern Hemisphere guys. And I had like a Friday night. I remember I had a stress related dream that um, Jamie Roberts was out with measles, so I had to get <laughs> I, got there, I got in there early and just got up to bed. and just checked he was alive and well, <laughs> and and saw. Um, David Hasselhoff, do you see this? David Hasselhoff doing the rounds by the yeah. pitch side beforehand. Has he been called into the squad? Uh, but, but I was thinking, I was thinking oh, strategy. this is nice. And I was thinking, actually, he looks, he looks in good shape. Um, <laughs> Flynn <laughs> Williams' style <is> goes. His <laughs> girlfriend's Welsh under Graham Henry. That would have been yeah. more than enough to get him into the team. I think he's more likely to get called up than
3: James Hook, isn't he? <laughs> yeah,
2: and that, yeah, and that's some impact if you bring on Hoff at 60 minutes with <laughs> the Baywatch theme. But I think I think we've got huge issues. Can we go seven games with this squad? I can't see how we can go seven games if if we can get past Fiji and Fiji now have nothing to lose. They've got an excellent track record against Wales in the World Cup. That's going to be a tremendously difficult team to play against. I think we've got a chance of winning there, probably without the bonus point. Would be my prediction. Um, as long as we do enough with the catch and drive, and they didn't learn, Fijians didn't learn enough from the Australian England games. And then we're on to Australia. I don't know, it doesn't bear thinking about it. So we're just concentrating on Saturday at the moment. It was so unlikely, the context of it. If we get through, it could well be South Africa. And the way they looked against Samoa, it doesn't make for many more happy dreams, probably more measles-related dreams. <laughs> well,
1: before the Welsh face Australia, of course, England face Australia. And is it literally do or die? I mean, mathematically, Andy Zoltzman, I don't know if you've had the abacus out. It is just... Well, it's yes. possible for England to lose and still <laughs> depending on other results but you don't want to put yeah, well, yourself in that know,
4: position they'll know by the time they play yeah what the wales fiji result is presumably unless they're going to lock themselves away and uh, put it on sky plus and watch it after the game but um so they'll know i mean they they you know, it's basically even if wales do lose to fiji they can't think oh well, you know, as long as we get a losing bonus point we'll be fine. <laughs> They're certainly not going to think we'll get a four try bonus and a losing bonus point. They look like they were trying to score no tries against Wales and accidentally got one. Um I- I'm yeah, I'm not hopeful for England. I, th- I think uh, Australia's uh, handling quality in the in the backs is going to cause us real problems. We lacked pace in the center of the field if Joseph is still out. Um it's yeah, I'm not not optimistic at all, and and the, the shame is that England's back three were looking really sharp. Anthony Watson was brilliant in the first twenty minutes, and yeah, then Johnny May has been yeah, a superstar. They hardly they didn't really see the ball, in the, and they brought Ford on, seemingly with instructions just to kick the ball away. And that that was another weird substitution. That things were going fine. Wales hadn't posed that much of a threat, so you take Burgess off, and that's a double shift because you're getting a new fly off and a new inside centre. And a minute later, Wales. Scored the try. There was a yeah muddle thing. I I really hope Danny Kerr gets in the squad because I think it, whether he's starting if Young is injured or coming off, the end, they need people who can you know inject something different, mm. and uh, they seriously lack that.
1: Well, let's talk uh, about Australia because obviously their defeat of Uruguay sixty five points to three. So that's the biggest win of this World Cup. Uh, the match about as far removed from the excitement of Twickenham as it was possible. They scored 11 tries and obviously won by a margin of 62. That may prove um, crucial uh, later on. Hardly any of the Aussie players, we think, will feature against England. So Andy Bull, hard to read much into it so far, isn't
0: it? Yeah, I wouldn't take away too much from that match at all. Their team will be a lot more like the one they fielded in the first round. uh, And that team is a lot scarier. I saw
3: Matt Burke writing in the Sydney Morning Herald that... um, Quade Cooper and Nick Phipps were genu- were playing for their places for the England match in that one. So uh, apparently, Michael Checker was genuinely con- is genuinely considering them. I think uh, Cooper missed six of his eleven conversions, off the top of my head. I mean, most of them were quite wide out. Um, they were he didn't miss any particularly simple ones. But I think that lack of reliability from the kicking team means that. Uh, uh, that Bernard Foley is like is probably going to start against England. You saw uh, I mentioned the uh, the uh, kicks Cooper missed were from wide out, and that just uh, that's kind of indicative of the width that they were uh, putting on the ball. They're going to, you know, their backs are their strength. They're one of the most exciting back divisions in the in the entire tournament, and they are going to get it through the hands quickly.
0: Um, I mean, I feel like I've I've. We're being a bit pessimistic here. And we we should remember that England have beaten Australia in their last two tests at Twickenham both times by seven points the first, nine the second. And, you know, Australians are not going to like me bringing this up, but everyone in the Northern Hemisphere will always say that you can get at the Australian pack. They seem a little bit more stable this time around at the scrum because of the work they've been doing with their new coach, Mario Ledesma. But, you know, England are always going to have that in their minds, that if we can get shove on at the scrum and get the advantage there... They can really take control of the match that way.
1: The Aussies did manage to wheel in one secret weapon um, at Villa Park. I don't know if any of you caught this. And um, bagpipes are banned at uh, the World Cup, but we Rightly did certainly. have a. <laughs> banned in the world. There <laughs> was a bagpipe player playing "Waltzing Matilda" rather bizarrely. Um, That's
4: globalisation gone mad, isn't
1: it? <laughs> it was. It was a very peculiar experience. Um, uh, let's a very quick yes or no. England through to the quarterfinals or not?
4: I'm saying no. I, I, I really hope they do get through, but I, I fear the worst. Like a everyone's, everyone's hesitating to say. I'm going to say...
3: Um, OK. Uh, no.
4: Uh, no. <laughs>
1: <There> <laughs> the b- but
4: the bookies still have having been
2: quite strong favourites to make the call. If yeah, yeah. they? they lose two home tests consecutively, that would be incredible. If I mean, I'm saying no, but if they lose those two...
0: It's just a terrifying amount of pressure on them, and they coped with the pressure so badly in both the Fiji Test and the Wales Test, they did not look like a team who could handle the amount of pressure that's going to be on them this weekend.
1: Well, we could fill a whole podcast with Pool A chat, to be honest, but we do need to move on. We'll be back with the Springboks chat after this.
0: Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast on The Guardian, sponsored by Heineken. Proud to open Rugby World Cup 2015. Get closer to the action at heineken.com rugby.
1: Crisis? What crisis? South Africa responded to defeat to Japan with an impressive 46-6 win over Samoa to get their World Cup firmly back on track. JP Peterson was the star in this one with the winger grabbing a hat-trick. So, were South Africa putting themselves right back front and centre then as contenders? Andy Bull.
0: Oh, crikey, no. It's a bit early to say that, <laughs> I, I would think. Uh, but I've got to confess, I had didn't see much of the match because I was preparing for the England game at Twickenham. But uh, no, one win and Jean de Villiers retired now, um, uh, still seemed to be a bit wobbly for me.
1: Yeah, we should talk about de Villiers. Um, a fractured jaw put him out of the match, but he's now announced his retirement from rugby altogether. What, what a servant he's been to South African rugby.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Although, you know, uh, he keeps seems always seems to get injured at a World Cup, which is his misfortune. Yes, he's had about 109,
4: 110 caps and... Was injured in every World Cup he's played in. I think he sort of came back for the quarter final last time. So basically, all he's done in World Cups is get injured, lose a quarter final that South Africa totally bossed against Australia, and lose to Japan. So, uh, given <laughs> the level of his career outside of World Cups, so they say, uh, as the old song Frank Sinatra song goes, love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. Uh, which clearly means unnaturally, uh, reluctantly and primarily for the convenience of transport then um, John de Villiers and World Cups go together like a horse in a French restaurant and he is very much the horse
1: <laughs> <in that laughs> I thought it was rather tragic when they said he's broken his other jaw you said
3: <laughs> <laughs> just Most South African <laughs> players have a range of jaws don't they? That, That's the second jaw injury he's had in about two months now isn't right. it? because yeah. he picked one up against Argentina during the Rugby Championship I do think that uh, his likely replacement Jesse Creel is a really, really exciting player to watch um, I don't De Allende
4: really, looked pretty good in the um, De Allende yeah, is, in the game yeah like it's
3: going to be a really really interest, uh,
2: interesting partnership to watch that one they've got a huge amount of strength there I, I don't know if it's been announced I expect probably Matfield to take over I mean the character in itself to to take on the, the armband I, think, I don't think there's anyone that's lost their first game and then gone on to win the World Rugby World Cup could be wrong but I know England and others have done it well where they've, where they've lost the first game that's given them momentum and this so-called bot clash from back home they've they really stuck into them I mean this is different to Wales embarrassing themselves at a World Cup because then the editor can point to a top five of previous environment, embarrassments <laughs> in South Africa they can this is unprecedented and, and looking through some of the papers there it's just a little bit uneasy to read some of the language used about what they should have done in the players so, that,
4: that's Afrikaans it's not just <laughs> right,
2: <okay.
0: laughs>
2: but but there's, there was real intent in the Samoa game that I saw, um, right from the off-drawing penalty. I always pronounced it incorrectly, but El- Elzebeth, the second row, incredible second row. Um, I think there's real anger and embarrassment there. Um, too hard to say, but Samoa, no pushovers. So, um, I know we can't say anything from one game, but you can certainly see that they've reacted. Um, and it's the sort of thing that does force momentum much more than a slow build-up, you know.
4: And they, and they brought in some big players, like um, Elzebeth, came off the bench against Japan. Uh Vermeulen didn't play against Japan, nor did Willie LaRue. And you know three three of their top top guys came in and made pretty made a big deal. And of
1: course Scotland are their next opponents. Um and um Scotland beat the USA thirty nine sixteen. So Scotland have now posted thirty plus points in three of their last four tests. Doesn't tell the whole story. Of course they were thirteen six down at half time. That was quite uncomfortable for a while, wasn't it, that Scotland match?
0: Yeah, I would uh, Scotland are a funny one because, you know, they're playing some beautiful rugby right now. Their backs are running some <laughs> lovely angles. They're scoring some lovely tries after a decade of them being so unbelievably dull to watch. <laughs> but they really got bullied by the USA in that first half and some of those hits really seemed to shake them. Ahead of the South Africa game you know, and Samoa, I would be a bit worried.
1: It did look like American football without the padding at one point, didn't it? it was the way they were crunching in. You, you really were thinking... Oh!
3: It was, but Scotland uh, they had a four-day turnaround since their win over Japan, and they uh, after that Japan when people were saying, oh, four-day turnarounds uh, ridiculous! You can't be expected to play two matches in five days." And Scotland kind of made a mockery with that, with the way they their, with their fitness and the way they lasted until the end, and the way that they pulled away from the USA in the second half.
1: This has been a, a real demonstration of how that last fifteen minutes of matches is often the difference, as you say, with the first and second tier of of the World Yeah, we saw it in the
4: Scotland-Japan game last week as well, that it was really even... fact, I mean, Japan, I don't think wherever, they they were behind, but they sort of had the best of it and missed a couple of great opportunities to score. Then their own four-day turnaround and an injury to their number eight who played really well hit them bad in Scotland, pulled away. And, um, yeah, in in this game, I was quite impressed with... Scotland after not a great first half and yeah to see you know Scotland have got you know centres who make breaks and run elusively oh, well what, what must that be like <laughs>
1: can um, we have one? Um, playing uh, um, in Newcastle it's, it's almost a home game really I mean the fans can really get fairly, well, I, I hesitate to say fans can travel to any match easily with the way this <laughs> World Cup has gone and with our trains, but is that going to be um, a mighty occasion for Scotland fans?
2: Scotland I really enjoy watching, but in the sort of same way that I really enjoy watching Wales in sort of the turn of the millennium, we would try and run, especially leading up to Mike Ruddock's era, and that the running backs was fantastic. It was a joy to watch and you'd lose. You, you When it came to the crunch, you, you'd do this fantastic, wonderful rug, running rugby to watch, and the back three of Scotland was about as good as... Most teams, you know, if you've got Visser, uh, Maitland and Hogg in any game, if, you, if they can be released, then that's fantastic. But I just wonder when it comes to the really tight games where it's decided in, in the front line, in the pack, whether they'll first have the opportunity to do that and whether they'll have enough game now, in the same way that Wales didn't have enough game now in the old days. They'll just put more pride in beautiful running rugby ahead of actually just obstinate Warren Gatland we're going to win, we're going to stay in this and we're going to win, you know. I think that might
3: be where I can see Scotland going. Very attractive, very uh, easy on the eye, but ultimately amounts to nothing at all. And it's kind of like an episode of Mad Men in that way, I think.
4: (laughs) (laughs) It's the first time I've ever heard the Scottish rugby team compared to an episode (laughs) of a long-running American TV drama.
1: Because our last last podcast, we were celebrating um, Japan, and of course, since then, um, Scotland beat Japan fairly comprehensively, but Samoa up next for... Uh, the Japanese, um, do we think that's sort of over and out for Japan?
3: I don't know I, I don't think we learned a lot about Samoa from this South Africa defeat, I'm not convinced that was their strongest team, uh, starting Paul Stanley at fly half ahead of Tusi PC it's, it's definitely not going to do that in a must win match, I mean Stanley didn't have a great game, they looked better when PC came on, uh, George PC hasn't played in either of the first two matches either I, having watched him at Northampton for the last few years, I can't Understand why you wouldn't pick him for uh, in your first team if you're Samoa. Um, I don't think we've seen the best of them yet. Uh, they've got fantastic fullback in Tim Nana Williams. He's been tearing up in Super Rugby this past season. Uh, Sonny Bill Williams' cousin. He is. I don't. Really, I think they'll be. They'll have too much for Japan. I think that their players play in better leagues. They play to a higher standard. Um, yeah, I think Japan. I don't want to call them a busted flush. But they're a bit of a busted flush because I can't think of a synonym. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure they are a busted flush. I thought they they backed up their opening game really well for 50 minutes in the game with Scotland. And in Gloucester, they've they've got a range of ways of playing, as we saw in you know, both of those first two two games. I think it, I think it could be one of the games of the tournament, particularly if the weather's good. I think that both teams play uh, exciting rugby, you know, with a mixture of forward power and uh, you know, expansive play in the backs, and with so much riding on it, I think I think it could be a classic. I mean, you wouldn't have thought Samoa v Japan in any sport would be, a classic, but I'm, I'm hoping so. Partly because that's one of the games I'm taking my kids to. So. Yes, I think and I'm I, I my son I remember, will not end said. up in floods of tears at the end of this. <laughs> You're doing one. Him
1: irreparable damage. <laughs> we we could have um, Akito Yamada back for Japan. I don't know if you heard about what why he was ruled out of the Scotland game. Apparently, he was stung by a weaver fish when he was swimming well, in the sea off Brighton. what sort of happened to everyone, and his foots is not it? I didn't know you had weaver fish in Brighton, but this is, what, this is what they were saying. And his foot swelled up, he couldn't get his boot on. That's got to go down at the moment as the best Rugby World Cup injury story thus far, hasn't it?
4: Yes, it could have been matched after the France-Romania game. when, uh, Sorry, the Ireland-Romania game. Uh, is that one of the uh, Romanian players uh, proposed on the pitch after the game to his, to his girlfriend, surrounded by all of his teammates, which, had it gone badly, could have resulted in a pretty spectacular injury. But it went, it went well. She, she uh, accepted. And there was a quote in the paper I saw that he's saying it's, uh, it's taken her five years to accept my rugby career, which possibly might come down to a documentary about Graham Roundtree's ears that they watched on their first date. Or um, <laughs> I just pointed that during the proposal, down on one knee, that there wasn't a ref uh, there saying, Stay on your feet, stay on your feet.
1: <laughs> oh, well, that's enough for Pool B. We'll be back to discuss all the goings-on with the All Blacks and Paul C.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Heineken. Proud to open Rugby World Cup 2015. Get closer to the action at heineken.com rugby.
1: You're listening to The Guardian's Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast. I'm Sandy War. Here with me in the studio is Andy Bull, Dan Lucas, Owen Evans and Andy Zaltzman. Well On Thursday, New Zealand defeated Namibia 58-14. As we discussed a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, Namibia lost 142-0 to Australia in 2003, the biggest thumping in World Cup history. So they've clearly made improvements since then. They even scored a try. So what do we think of how Namibia performed? Let's start with you, Owen.
2: Kiwis and Namibia and, and the general theme of this is something difficult to talk about because it's like Ireland. You don't really know where teams are yet unless they're featuring a group of death. We're only a game or two into the, into the tournament. As a general comment, um, I've really enjoyed the first week of the World Cup. I think it's been a really good World Cup and I think it's interesting timing because it's in the back of, I know we've got cricket fans and they're in the back of Death of the Gentlemen and looking at the way these World Cups are structured and how you're supporting not the big boys but the Tier 2 nations. And the way that World Rugby, um, to their credit for all the criticism the ICC have had, but the way that World Rugby have not only financially supported the Tier 2 nations, but also sending coaches out, I think um, it's uh, Phil Davis, isn't it, over in Namibia, has gone over there to try and... Pour them on. I know, I don't know if it was said in jest in terms of the, the result against Australia and their result against New Zealand now, But if you look across the board this weekend, there's some really competitive games. We're just talking about Samoa's game. We've got Romania game coming up in Italy, isn't it? Where it looks like it's going to be a decent game. So I think the work that's being done every four years now, they're identifying the fact that this is a Commonwealth game that needs to be spread beyond. We we're off to Japan in four years' time. Japan have had a landmark moment in this World Cup. It's been a great tournament to watch. The only, obviously, downside would be if the hosts go out. But we won't talk about that now, probably <laughs> until next week. So I think Namibia are coming on. I really couldn't tell. We haven't chat before. I really couldn't tell what we learned from the Kiwis yet.
3: We learned that neither um, uh, Perenara nor Bowden Barrett, the, the halfbacks, are getting anywhere near the first team unless they decide to pick Barrett at fullback and move Smith to Surveyor's wing because I wasn't impressed with Surveyor either. Uh, very few, I was at that match. That's one of the That's the only match I think I'm man- uh, managing to actually get to. Um, I wasn't hugely impressed with the All Blacks. Uh, Neha Milner-Skuda looked as dangerous as uh, as we know he is the way he can find space when there apparently is none and then just put on the afterburners is uh, is highly impressive but that's that's not really something we learned that's just something we got to see happen again Sonny Bill Williams looked handy in the centres his offloading is well we know what his offloading's like I'm really struggling to think of something we learn uh, about the All Blacks. I mean, uh, for Namibia, I was really impressed with their lock, uh, Johann Dazel, who scored their try. He's apparently attracting some interest from Premiership clubs after that.
1: What did you make of the Mandy Saltzman? Uh
4: Well, I was at that game as well. I think what we did learn is that the seats behind the posts at the Olympic Stadium are a phenomenally large distance from the pitch. <laughs> um, so that's something for West Ham fans to look to look forward to. Um, yes, yeah, uh, Namibia were. Uh, impressive in, in in terms of developing the game what i'd like to see now is every autumn you know we we should have some of these teams coming to the to europe for the autumn international so they're not just playing at at, uh, at world cups rather than, you know england playing australia new zealand south africa every single year but you know have fiji samoa tonga and the, the others coming over
0: you'd like georgia to get more of a go against the the good teams. That's it's true. The, pro- the problem there is actually getting clubs to release a lot of these players, particularly for the Islanders, who are on you know great club deals over here, and a lot of the it, contracts. There's some yeah, pretty dodgy well, contracts. Well, I mean,
4: that's there. a responsibility yeah. for the whole game collectively, yes, isn't it? Yeah, to,
0: yeah. Uh, as you're saying, no, there
4: is that element. They are doing more to to sort of look after the entire game than than cricket is doing, which appears to be trying to get rid of the body it doesn't want by chopping its own head off. Um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, in terms of New Zealand, yeah, you can't learn anything from a game like that. But Sonny, there was one try in the first half when Sonny Bill Williams did this kind of, you know, sort of surreal offload whilst being mashed by three players. maybe you think, in 70 years' time, he's going to pull off some incredible offload from out of his own coffin as he's being lowered into the ground.
1: <laughs> well, is Georgia up next for the All Blacks? Um, much of the same, do we think?
4: Yes, uh, Georgia, you know, better than Namibia, but uh, I don't think they've got the, the kind of game that could trouble the... The New Zealanders, their pack wasn't particularly impressive, and that's the
3: Georgian, the Georgian strength. Well, uh, Argentina cut Georgia to ribbons in the end. They, you know, it was close at half time, and the All Blacks are a significantly better team than Argentina. I can't see that one being close.
1: Yeah, we had three tries in twelve minutes there in that match, and that flipped the whole character of the game at that point.
3: Yeah, but Argentina,
4: I thought, were really good. Um, yeah, I agree Yeah, it was uh, you know, it was a, a tight game, but they they looked. In control, it wasn't a tight game where you would think they were struggling to hold on. It always looked like they'd pull away. The sin being of God's so clearly helped them do that. But they were they play a really impressive fifteen man game now, and yeah. I, I think they are going to be a real force in the in this. I, I think they'll make the semi-final. And they, they I find them really great to watch. The, you know, like I was saying before, they're kind of old school, but there's. They're just really great precision and ambition to their game at the moment.
2: So hard to tell with Argentina, isn't it? I mean, they, now they're in the championship, and you're up against South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. It's so hard to know where the barometer is with them. I was all um, Xavier Rush speaking on Scrum uh, Scrum Five last night about. New Zealand, and Jason Mahomes was trying to say, it was never in doubt, was it, between New Zealand and Australia? And he was going, no, back home, we were we were worried there. For, for an hour, we were seriously worried. Because you don't still know with Argentina, now that they're a completely rounded team, as you say, um, which way they're going to go. And I feel like if it's not this World Cup, it'll be next where they're really going to come through and do a final four placing.
1: Yeah, quarterfinals or better at <coughs> three of the last mm. um, four World Cups. So, as you say, they are a force to be reckoned with. And we'll be talking all things Paul D., After this. I'm John Alomi and you're
2: listening to the Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast on the Guardian.
1: Well, Ireland top Paul D with two wins and ten points after more bonus points. Yesterday they beat Romania at Wembley 44-10 in front of a World Cup record crowd. Ireland playing their second string side. So, again, are we in the same position? We can't take too much from this, Andy?
0: Yeah, Ireland are one of those teams... As Owen was saying earlier, you're sort of waiting to see where they're at, really. Uh, we haven't learned that much about them so far.
3: I think one of Ireland's great strengths is that if you look at the team they put out against Romania, which was very much a second-string team, it's not appreciably worse. Apart from maybe at half-back, uh, where Murray and Sexton are so key, it's not appreciably worse than their first team. And that they, they do have that strength in depth. They They're not as good as the likes of New Zealand and Australia, I don't think. I don't think they're quite at that level yet they're just a step below but if they if they suffer an injury as long as it's not at halfback uh, then I don't think they'll have too many concerns about whoever t- uh, steps into that role
1: Have they been sort of quietly being a little under the radar we've been paying so much attention to some of the other teams do you Well
3: think? yeah that's
4: partly due to their fixture list which has given them a you know, relatively stress-free beginning they've got Italy next who've been unimpressive so far so I mean they could be in the quarter finals without having had a tough game um, yeah, I think uh, yeah we basically <laughs> learned nothing about Ireland twice. We already knew they were good from recent Six Nations and Autumn Internationals. But how good they are, I think yeah you know, we might see against against France in the in the last group game. By which time both teams won't already be in the quarterfinal. Then it's I guess a game to avoid the All Blacks. But
2: it's it's I just don't know whether you would prefer if you were Joe Schmidt or, or one of the other guys if you had your team and you saw the fixture <coughs> list whether you prefer to get through a group of death. And be in that position when you come to the knockout stages. Because we've seen it where, before where people have coasted through to the quarters and then they've had a reality check by someone that's ba- match hardened by the time they get there. Yeah. So I just couldn't work out. With New Zealand, I think they're a little bit of the exception rather than the rule. I think they'll just prepare for it, whatever. But the likes of Ireland, I think, could be susceptible to that trapdoor. You know, once you get through, you're just not ready to actually push through. You haven't had the final five minutes that an England or a Wales have had, you know, for instance.
3: I think what Ireland are doing with these. Uh, easier opening games, is they're trying to add some some extra dimensions to their game. I, I remember during the Six Nations, when I was doing the minute-by-minutes, I was quite critical of Ireland for having a very one-dimensional game, which is based around set-piece dominance with the forwards and the accuracy of uh, the half-backs kicking. This time you saw against Romania, like Australia against Uruguay, uh, the tries were all being scored out wide. There were very few close to the posts, And they, again, they were putting more width on the ball. They were getting it through the hands quickly, which isn't something we've seen from Ireland in their competitive fixtures lately so I think they're, uh, yeah. this is um, Joe Schmidt trying to kind of build a more rounded uh, more varied team
1: So Ireland have Italy next at the Olympic Stadium Italy beating Canada on Saturday in Leeds a closer encounter than some might have thought Andy, what did you think?
0: Yeah, although Italy are having a bad World Cup aren't they? I mean they're a team who have sort of come off the boil for the tournament uh, some of that is obviously injuries to a couple of iconic
3: players for them but, um,
0: yeah, the Canadians, I uh, really like the way the Canadians played.
3: Canada can, can would be really good if they ha- uh, could defend. Like, uh, Nathan Hiriam is uh, re- I really like him in attack, the way he attacks the line uh mm-hmm. the fly half. And mm-hmm. uh, DTH Fandemervo, who's uh, played for Scarlet's, He's, uh, he's a fantastic finisher. Um, yeah, and then
0: obviously you know, reinforced by Cudmore, who must you know, yeah. be one of the toughest men in the World Cup. Yes, yeah, so spe- you could.
4: Spectacular beards in the Canadian. A- astonishing goals. beards. You'll
3: in get a solid 70 team. minutes from Cudmore, before, yeah. uh, excluding the tennies in the bin.
1: <laughs> and Bergamasco coming off the bench to appear in his fifth World Cup, which is quite remarkable.
4: Yes, cons- yeah. I mean, cons- I mean, it's amazing he's not had a career-ending injury, given the way, kind he- of <laughs> fearless <laughs> way that he plays. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's the only real competitor for most mashed-up face uh, to go up against Jack Berger. So <laughs> it's great
3: to see him still mashing his face up five World <laughs> perhaps later.
1: Any any trouble for Ireland at all? Can we see in this fixture?
3: No, Italy are pretty dire. I mean, even if Parise is fit, I can't see them winning that one. I'm, I'm actually tipping Romania to beat Italy. That's yeah, true. I
0: think that's quite a good call, actually, and that would be a great match.
3: I yeah, I think so. Well,
1: but, France beat Romania, of course, 38-11 last week and have Canada up next. What do we think about, about France?
4: Uh, it's going disastrously for France, absolutely cata- catastrophically. They've had two routine wins they're playing fine without being spectacular and nothing discernibly is going wrong which means they're clearly going to get knocked out in the quarterfinals I it. disagree
3: I think France are going to play dreadfully for the whole World Cup and win the whole thing they should have lost one of these two games if they had any chance of going deep in this tournament
4: they had to be in meltdown by now oh, they just not going it. according to plan but what I, I went to the, the France-Romania game and you mentioned the Ireland uh, uh, Romania game having 89,000 crowds at Wembley the crowds are, and, and that, that was not a cheap game the cheapest ticket for that was £50 a category D tickets it's absolutely extraordinary the the crowds at this tournament even for games that was ne- never going to be close dramatic or important it's uh, spectacular
2: for those of us at Twickenham on Saturday there was one I felt one little gripe and something that's been seeping in a little bit with the PA before the match and and the yeah. kind of it's, it, with rugby, it's so unnecessary. For an England-Wales World Cup match at Twickenham, you do not need someone on the microphone with a scream if you want to go faster that attitude, <laughs> you know? It's, it's,
0: yeah, and the deafening music. And you've got 80,000 people singing. In a way, Twickenham, never. I'm there for every game at Twickenham, every game England play. It never sounds like that.
3: Yeah. Much as I like the Rolling Stones, you don't need to hear yeah. Start that's Me that's Up. So which always signals an ITV advert as well,
4: doesn't it? <laughs> so, I mean That should have been a minute, while they were waiting for the advert to finish, of just the stadium going absolutely nuts. Exactly. Do you hear what Mick Jagger was singing 35 years ago? <laughs> so <laughs> so
1: more, more, great music, le- and more great rugby, less music. Yeah, is It's, what a, we're it's
4: a curse of all sports, this. And um, I, I think you were at the World Cup semi-final in Mahali, India, yes. Pakistan, yeah. which should have been in 2011, should have been one of the most intense sporting atmospheres there's ever been. I mean it was all the home crowd but all it was was a guy on the PA system playing blasts of pop music it's insane yeah. it has to stop when there's a try you don't need music that the crowd is its own
3: music you especially don't need take that which is what they're yes.
4: playing <laughs> yes oh, who's not that the
3: take that and the rugby cr- crowd I mean, would who? go God, together just, the
4: people who decide these things Don't like or understand sport. Let the crowd make its own noise.
1: (laughs) Well, that's it for this That's the most
4: important issue of this World (laughs) Cup.
1: Who am I to argue with you? Well, that's all for this episode of our Rugby World Cup 2015 podcast. There is no podcast next week, so we'll be back in two weeks to discuss the final round of pool matches. Who knows what will have happened by then? You can subscribe to us on iTunes or keep up with us at acast.com slash rugbyworldcup. Make sure you check out all The Guardian's previews and coverage of the tournament at theguardian.com sport. I'm Sandy Waugh. Our producer is Pete Sale. We need to do some quick tidying up so the Football Weekly guys don't give us a hard time again this <laughs> week. Uh, thanks for listening.